This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books and their headlines and recommend to you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I am joined today by my co-host To Wenli. Hello. Today we are going to talk about new novels by Booker International Prize winning authors who are by pure coincidence both called David, David. They are David Diop, who earlier this year became the first French author and the first author of African heritage to win the Booker International Prize with his book At Night All Blood is Black, translated by Anna Muscovakis, and Israeli author David Grossman, who won the prize in 2017 with the darkly comic A Horse Walks Into a Bar, and he has just published the English translation of his latest novel, More Than I Love My Life, and both of them are translated by Jessica Cohen. Some background on the Booker International Prize, which is not the same as the Booker Prize. It is awarded annually to a book translated into English and published in the United Kingdom or Ireland and worth £50,000. And this is split equally between author and translator, unlike the Booker Prize, which just goes to the author. Um, It began its present iteration in 2016, and the first edition of it was awarded to The Vegetarian by South Korean author Han Kang, uh, translated by Deborah Smith. So and, uh, there was an earlier version of the prize, which ran from 2005 to 2015, and it was awarded every two years to a living author's entire body of literature as opposed to just one book, kind of like the Nobel is today, but that got phased out. Anyway, since it came into existence uh, in 20, the, ver- the current version in 2016, uh, the Booker International and its focus on translation has helped authors not writing in English reach wider readership. It's known to have a very salutary effect on book sales, for one. Some of these authors were already pretty famous in their own countries and languages, like uh, Olga Tokarczuk, who um, was a 2018 winner, and she went on to be awarded the Nobel Prize of Literature. Others were debuts, like the young Dutch author Marika Lukas Rinwald, whose novel The Discomfort of Evening we previously covered on this podcast. So back to David Grossman. He falls into the former category. He is considered one of the um, most celebrated Israeli authors living today. And A Horse Walks Into a Bar, it was first published in Hebrew in 2014. And it is about a stand-up comic routine that is actually really grim. And uh, so More Than I Love My Life, recently published in English. Wendy, could you tell us a bit about what the book is about? Yes, this is a book that brims with a quiet intensity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's only about, I think about uh, close to 300 pages, but it's um, pretty heavy reading. Um, yes, so it is the story of three women, um, Vera, a 90-year-old woman from Croatia, um, Nina, her daughter, and Gilly, her 39-year-old granddaughter, who happens to be a filmmaker, and she's also narrating the story. So um, we see Gilly interviewing Vera and Nina on camera, and she listens to the oral accounts of what happened in the past. Um, for example, Vera's days as a political prisoner off the coast of Croatia, which was then part of um, Yugoslavia. Um, Vera was detained for more than three years on the prison island of Goli Otok, where they tortured opponents of the Yugoslavian dictator Tito. And um, during that time, um, Vera's daughter Nina was left on the streets and she had to fend for herself. Um, The story skips back and forth between time periods and um, the act of memory is really poignant because, as it turns out, um, Nina herself is suffering from a degenerative disease that causes her to lose her memory bit by bit. Um, We see how trauma can, in fact, poison three generations in this novel. It's about love, abandonment, suffering... 
And there is a shocking realization um, partway through the novel when we find out that Vera, um, the, the now 90-year-old woman, um, had a choice back then. She she was imprisoned only because she refused to betray her dead husband and denounce him as, as an enemy of the people. If she had done so, um, she would not have been imprisoned and she would have not had to abandon her daughter. So we get a sense that she in a way, um, chose her dead husband over her living daughter, um, a massive act of love, but also um, an act of betrayal in its own way, because um, her daughter had a difficult life during those three years away from her mother. Um, one thing that struck me when I read this was a certain harshness and uh, a harsh honesty to the way certain things are framed and described in the novel. Um, so, for example, Gilly, um, when she's trying to remember scenes from her childhood, memories of her mother and father, um, she writes, a large eraser runs back and forth over my consciousness. So this sense of erasure of memories and trauma is something that comes up a lot in this book. Um, also, in a short scene that I found somewhat shocking, um, Vera actually admits that she was more like a mother to her stepson, Rafi, than she was to her biological daughter, Nina. She tells one of the characters in the book, It's like with Nina, I had missed carriage, and with Rafi, it all of a sudden was everything right. So, Vera is actually based on a real-life character. She was inspired by an elderly Croatian woman known as Eva Panik Nahir, who died in 2015 in her 90s, and she was in fact a friend of Grossman's as well. Um, she was also imprisoned on Goli Otok for three years and similarly had a complicated relationship with her daughter. So I interviewed Javid Grossman over the phone and he recounted how he met Eva Panik Nahir oh. and she called him randomly out of the blue. He never met her before. She just called him about more than 20 years ago and she wanted to correct. She was complaining. Was she? she was complaining. She wanted to correct an article he had written it that morning. He had published that morning as, you know, as journalists, we are all very familiar with this phenomenon. But then as she was scolding him, she, he, she's a very uh, authoritative manner, he says. Uh, and she, he noticed she had a very unusual accent. He was like, where, huh. where are you from? And then she began to tell her origin story. But at a crucial, suspenseful moment, she was she suddenly she said, uh, she just stopped and she was like, can I call you back another time? And he said, okay. And then in this very Scheherazade-like oh. fashion, he got the origin story of Eva Panik now here. And they were friends for 20 years. And, but she died before uh, he finished the book. But she didn't know mm. that he was writing it. She actually had um, you know, encouraged him to write it. That's quite a story. And she's, she's a pretty well-known figure in Yugoslavia, yeah. isn't she? Yeah, she's considered like, yeah. the national heroine. Yeah. One thing I love about this book is how, you know, it just takes an unflinching look at um, the complex relationships between parent and child, uh, specifically mother and child. Um, and it's it's about characters who try to reconcile themselves to what happened in the past and to navigate that tricky relationship between um, them and their parent. So there's one, there's one line that stood out for me um, in the book as well, which is when Gilly's father, Raphael, tells her, um, when, you know, after she has ranted about her mother, he, he tells her, um, and I quote, do you know when childhood ends? Do you know when people really start to mature? When they can accept that the parents have a right to their own psychology. So yeah, more than, more than I love my life is not light reading, but it's, you know, written a style that will tug you in. I found it very psychologically complex, but also very readable. Now, if you like what you're listening to, subscribe to our podcast series, Bookmark This, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and on to our next book. Now we're going to move to France, 
We recently learned that we have a surprising number of listeners from France. It's the country with the second highest number of downloads for this podcast after Singapore, which surprised us. And we actually, we don't really know why this is because we haven't really talked about any French books before this, unless you count Les Mis. Uh, but shout out to our French listeners. Merci et bienvenue à ce podcast. Earlier this year, David Dio became the first French author to win the Booker International Prize with At Night All Blood is Black. He is also the first author of African Heritage to win this iteration of the prize. His father is Senegalese. Uh, the prize was previously won in its earlier iteration in 2007 by the Nigerian author Chinua Achebe. Uh, Diop's novel is about the soldiers which were called the Senegalese Tirailleurs. Uh, some 200,000 of them fought for France in World War One. However, we must note that the they were not all Senegalese. It's a, the, the Senegalese Tirailleurs are like a catch-all term for soldiers who were recruited from all across French colonial Africa. Uh, they included Algerians, Tunisians, Moroccans, and so on. This is quite a harrowing novel. It's uh, very short. It's less than 200 pages, but it packs a lot of nightmare stuff into these pages. It begins with Alpha Ndiaye, who is a Senegalese soldier in World War I, and he watches his best friend, Madame Badio, die this very terrible, protracted death over many days on the battlefield. So Madame keeps asking him to kill him, but Alpha cannot bring himself to end his friend's suffering. So uh, this has a very traumatic effect on Alpha. And in revenge, he starts hunting white enemy soldiers. So he takes them one by one from the safety of their trenches and he disembowels them in the same way that his friend died. And then he lies down next to them and watches the life leave their eyes. And then finally, he cuts their hands off and he brings them back to his trench as trophies. Gosh. So, <laughs> yeah. So his comrades are at first supportive because he is helping them kill the enemy. But after a while, they grow kind of suspicious about this whole hand collection thing. So they begin to wonder, you know, is is if he's only bringing back the hands, what does he do with the rest of the bodies? Is he eating them? Is he some kind of a witch, you know, because um, they have that in their culture. Uh, then they try to report him for being mentally unsound, but he hides his hand collection in such a way that they are unable to find evidence of his insanity. This is actually this part is actually kind of funny in this really dark and comic way. In a Titus Andronicus kind of way. <laughs> so, yeah, terrible and gruesome, <laughs> but he's pretty he's he's quite witty about it, I think. Um this is a novel that everything is this constant state of evisceration. So these boundaries they keep breaking down, the insides are introduced to outsides where they should not be, the insides of people and so on. Mm. And the earth of the battlefield is described as being full of gaping wounds. To quote Alpha's description, he says, the insides of the earth were outside, the insides of my mind were outside. And I knew, I understood that I could think anything I wanted to on the condition that the others knew nothing of it. So I locked my thoughts back in my head after observing them from up close. Strange. Strange indeed. Well, this is quite a slender novel. I finished it in like, I think, two hours. Uh, it covers a lot of ground. It has a lot of devastating insights into colonialism, into toxic masculinity, into the horrors of war. So Dio was born in Paris, uh, and he spent part of his childhood in Dakar, Senegal's capital. He became fascinated with World War I because of his great-grandfather on his French mother's side. Uh, his great-grandfather fought in the trenches, but he, all his life, according to his mother, um, Dio's mother, he remained silent about what he endured, that he's never spoke. So it was the silence that sort of Dio wanted to fill. 
And he also wanted to shed light on the experiences of the Jigaya because um, I think about 30,000 of them were killed on the European front during World War One. So, you know, for countries that they themselves are not citizens of. Um, but their sacrifices are not so well known or well remembered today. So I don't know if you studied literature for on the war, because I studied them for my courses in modernism. Uh, but I never encountered any perspective of African soldiers in World War One. I was always vaguely aware that they were there, but we never, it's always a lot like Ernest Hemingway, Fort Max Ford, and mm. yeah, so no um, perspectives from African soldiers. It's especially noteworthy that this won a prize in translation because so much of it is about the act of translation. It is a work that's written in French with a narrator that's speaking Wolof. And now this whole thing has been translated into English. And the translator, American poet Anna Moskovakis, she's, I think, well aware of these many layers of irony. She really brings that out. And she does such a superb job here. And she preserves this uh, very taut, incantatory rhythm of the original. And she repeats, so there are a lot of expressions in here, like uh, like God's truth. So it's quite sonorous, quite rhythmic. And she does choose not to um, translate the pun, the wordplay in the original title. So the original book is called, in French, which translates literally to soul brother. And Alpha often in the book refers to Mademba as his more than brother. Um, and uh, the title also sounds very close to Frère d'Armes, uh, which means brother in arms. And I don't know if this is what Diop was going for, but there is a very dark pun <laughs> to be found in here with regards to the hand collection, if we want to go there. Um, possibly we don't. Uh, anyway, for the title or the English translation, Moskovakis, she goes for At Night All Blood is Black. And that's a line taken from a scene in which Alpha kills a white soldier, and it's about him, um, and so it's reflective of the the leveling nature of death. And uh, there's this passage that I particularly like there towards the end of the book, which I will read now. It goes, to translate is never simple. To translate is to betray at the borders. It's to cheat. It's to trade one sentence for another. To translate is one of the only human activities in which one is required to lie about the details to convey the truth at large. To translate is to risk understanding better than others that the truth about a word is not single, but double, even triple, quadruple, or quintuple. To translate is to distance oneself from God's truth, which, as everyone knows or believes, is single. So many things to think about in terms of, you know, both of these books in translation that we are reading, and we'll never know the truth of all of them. Anyway, that's what we have for you this episode. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm Toh Wen Lee. And you have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast, which you can subscribe to on your favorite smartphone audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and rate us. We'll catch you next time. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.